welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the head and neck module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topics we're going to be covering today includes salivary gland pathology, such as calculi and infections, as well as cervical infections. So we'll be looking at the compartments of the neck and the different types of infections and abscesses that can occur. So the first topic I want to talk about is sialadenitis. Sialadenitis is the term used for inflammation of the salivary gland, which is often associated with swelling, pain and tenderness of the gland. It can be either acute or chronic, and there's a number of underlying potential um, etiologies for this condition. And this includes autoimmune, viral and bacterial causes. In terms of autoimmune, Sjogren's syndrome is a common cause. Sjogren's is spelt S-J-O-G-R-E-N. And this is an autoimmune condition that is common in older women and results in dry eyes and mouth due to inflammation and reduction in salivary secretion from the salivary glands. You can also get IgG4-related disease in the salivary glands, which is relevant for general surgery um, because we deal with IgG4 disease in the pancreas, in the liver, um, and in the thyroid gland as well. In terms of viral causes, viruses that can cause sialadenitis include mumps, Coxsackie virus, parainfluenza, influenza A, and EBV virus. And lastly, bacterial infections can be a cause of sialadenitis, and the common organisms include Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, Pseudomonas, and cat scratch disease, which is an infection with Bartonella hensilae. Some predisposing factors that can lead to infection of the salivary gland or sialadenitis include any process that inhibits salivary flow or causes salivary stasis. So this includes dehydration, sialolithiasis, so stones in the ducts or in the gland itself, a ductal stricture, autoimmune diseases like Sjogren's syndrome, previous irradiation, older patients, poor oral hygiene, use of anticholinergic drugs that reduce the parasympathetic innervation of the gland, malnutrition, and patients who are intubated or have positive pressure mask ventilation. And it's thought that the salivary stasis permits retrograde seeding of the salivary duct, which then leads to an infection in the gland. And often it's due to a mixture of oral flora. The clinical presentation of an infection in the salivary gland is typically of a sudden onset of firm swelling and erythema over the gland with local pain, 
And you can also get trismus, especially if it's the parotid gland, as well as fevers and chills. And if you milk the duct, you can sometimes get purulent material from the duct orifice. Imaging can be useful with sialadenitis to assess for the inflammation, see if there's any duct obstruction by a stone, and to rule out an abscess or underlying tumor. Typically, an ultrasound would be the first port of call, um, but a CT scan can also be used and preferable if you're worried about a calculus. In terms of management, the mainstay of management is resuscitation and intravenous antibiotics. Typically, you wouldn't be doing incision and drainage of abscesses in salivary glands. You might do aspiration of pus and treating the underlying cause. So if there's stones obstructing the duct, then removing those and getting the patient off any anticholinergics, fixing any issues with oral hygiene, stopping smoking, and making sure the patient is well hydrated. You can get atypical infections such as with mycobacterium, um, so you may want to send an MCNS, uh, especially if you're doing an aspiration. These patients should be admitted to hospital. Um, They're not suitable for outpatient management due to the potential for spread um, of infection into the deep fascia of the head and neck. And for patients in the community, treatment is something like ampicillin and metronidazole um, or keftriaxone and metronidazole. If you're worried about MRSA infection, then you can add vancomycin. And some patients will develop sialadenitis when they're an inpatient in hospital and unwell for another reason, or they may be immunocompromised. And so you may consider wider cover for these patients, such as with um, Piptaz or Kefepime and Metronidazole and adding in vancomycin as well. So the next topic I want to talk about is sialolithiasis, which is the fancy term for salivary gland stones. Sialolithiasis can refer to stones within the gland itself or in the duct. And it usually occurs in the major salivary glands with the submandibular gland most prone to stone formation due to a higher calcium content within the secretions, as well as a more mucinous secretion um, with the parotid gland being more serous and the submandibular gland being more mucinous. And it's thought that the mucin allows the calcium to form crystals. It's more common than men than in women. And it typically occurs in the 30 to 60-year-old age groups. The pathogenesis, as I've mentioned, is thought to be due to stagnation of salivary flow. And the calcium concentration is thought to be important. And stones are mostly made out of calcium phosphate, magnesium, potassium, and ammonium. And the stones themselves can lead to blocking of the duct and inflammation of the salivary gland with secondary infection. The risk factors for the development of sialolithiasis, again, are those features that slow down the drainage of um, saliva from the ducts and the glands. So things like dehydration and hypovolemia, use of diuretics, use of anticholinergic medications, trauma to the gland, smoking, poor oral hygiene, and history of renal stones or hypercalcemia. The symptoms of 
xylolithiasis typically will involve pain and swelling, which can be aggravated by the anticipation of eating or of eating. There can be a painless swelling of the gland. They may experience a foul taste in the mouth or the sensation of grit or sand in the mouth. Stones can be found incidentally, like on CT scans or dental radiographs. And as I've mentioned, they can lead to a secondary infection where the pain gets much worse and they get erythema, tenderness and fevers. In terms of the examination looking for stones, for the submandibular gland, which is the most common gland to have stones 80 to 90% of the time, you want to palpate the course of the duct along the floor of the mouth in a posterior to anterior direction. And have a look visually to see if you can see a stone at the opening. You also want to do bimanual palpation of the gland using fingers in the mouth and also under the mandible in the submandibular triangle. For the parotid, you can palpate the mucosa around the opening of the parotid duct, which is just opposite the second molar tooth, the upper second molar tooth. And a normal gland should feel spongy and elastic and compression of a salivary gland should cause clear saliva to flow out of the duct. So if there's grit or purulent discharge, then you have to be worried about stones or a secondary infection. And the gland can be quite tender if there are stones present. The differential diagnoses for sialolithiasis include viral sialadenitis, bacterial infection, Sjogren's syndrome, as I've mentioned, sarcoidosis or a salivary gland tumor, especially if there's asymmetric painless enlargement. The diagnosis of sialadenitis is typically made with a clinical examination looking for stones and then imaging. So an ultrasound is a useful test and about 90% of stones that are two millimeters or larger can be detected with an ultrasound but the CT scan is the modality of choice and you should do fine cuts or fine slices through the salivary glands so that stones are not missed. Management of sialolithiasis depends on the presentation. So patients who are completely asymptomatic, who are incidentally found to have a stone in their gland or in the duct, don't need any treatment. Patients can then be treated medically if they have symptoms, so they can make sure that they're well hydrated, you can put moist packs on the area, and can also massage and try to milk the duct. You can use what's called silagogues, which are essentially things that will make you secrete more saliva, so tart, sweet things like lemon drops. Cease any potentially causative medications such as anticholinergics and diuretics if possible. Give the patient analgesia and treat any secondary infection with antibiotics. The interventional options include lithotripsy, uh, like an extracorporeal lithotripsy or using a laser lithotripsy via a scope. Uh, I don't know how frequently these are done, but it sounds very fiddly. Silo endoscopy is another option, which is a small little camera that can be put into the duct and they can use um, little baskets to try to retrieve the stone. They can use little micro drills and lasers as well to um, fragment the stone and retrieve the fragments. 
This is apparently much more useful for the parotid gland because the duct is bigger and also more difficult to get to surgically. And obviously needing to remove the parotid gland to get rid of stone disease is a pretty big undertaking with the facial nerve obviously being a complicating factor. And some ENT surgeons do do silo endoscopy. It does require um, an anesthetic that can sometimes be done under local. And if the stone is small, like less than four millimeters, it may be quite easy to remove. But if it's more than four millimeters, then might need fragmentation um, in order to get out. The other surgical options include incision and retrieval of the stone, which for the submandibular gland can be quite easy in the floor of the mouth with a transoral incision of the duct and removal of the stone. And you can just leave the duct open or you can marsupialize the edges so that it stays open and drains better. You obviously need to be mindful of the lingual nerve, which is closely approximated to the duct. So starting laterally, going underneath and then medial to the duct. So being mindful not to transect that. And obviously, if the stone is not in the distal duct, so if it's proximal or in the gland itself, this won't be possible. And so for a submandibular gland, typically, if you have troublesome stones in the gland or the proximal duct, you would do a submandibular gland extirpation. For the parotid gland, it's more difficult to try to get the stone out through the transoral route, um, and that's why you might do silo endoscopy, and a parotidectomy really is a last resort for stone disease in the parotid, and luckily it's much less common in the parotid gland. It's in our operative nose how to do a submandibular dichotomy and stone extraction. So I thought I would run through that now. Again, as I've mentioned in my last episode, there's a great online guide called the Open Access Atlas of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Operative Surgery. And there is a section on sylolithiasis. If you want to have a little look at some pictures and operative techniques for this, but I'll run through it anyway. So this can actually be done under local anesthetic. And one of the ENT surgeons I've worked with has said it's much easier to do while the patient is awake because once they're intubated, the floor of the mouth and the mylohyoid relaxes and it's more difficult to access this area. Um, Whilst they're awake, it's sort of tented open by the tone of the mylohyoid. So you put local anesthetic into the floor of the mouth and you identify the opening of the submandibular duct. They talk about putting silk sutures around the duct behind the stone in order to keep forward pressure on the stone so that while you're doing this operation, the stone doesn't slip further back into the duct. And then you basically cut through the mucosa on the floor of the mouth with a blade or electrosurgery, um, such as a diathermy, in order to open up the anterior surface of the duct. This should then give you access to remove the stone. And one of the ENT guys I work with have said you can also just leave it open at that point that you don't need to do any more. But I've also heard that you can marsupialize the opening, so sew along the edges of the duct to the oral mucosa. um, And in this 
article that I mentioned, they suggest using a forovicral, um, probably use something that's dissolvable. The other surgical option I mentioned is a submandibular gland excision. And I ran through how to do that on the last episode when I talked about salivary gland tumors. Before I move on to talk about neck infections, I just want to randomly mention a topic that I came across in Head and Neck that also has to do with the salivary glands. It's not particularly mentioned in our curriculum, but I've seen it come up as a spot in a tube before. So it's probably worth just knowing a little bit about it. And this is ranulas. A ranula is a collection of extra glandular saliva in the floor of the mouth, which usually originates from the sublingual salivary gland. And there's another concept called a plunging ranula, which extends into the submandibular triangle of the neck through a defect in the mylohyoid muscle or by passing behind the posterior edge of the muscle, the same uh, place that the submandibular gland kind of wraps around the mylohyoid. And this presents as a cystic structure in the floor of the mouth. So you can see it um, looking into the mouth under the tongue as a cystic swelling and can also extend into the neck um, and into the submandibular triangle as a mass. The sublingual salivary glands I haven't really talked about yet, but they are located beneath the mucosa of the anterior floor of the mouth and they're anterior to the submandibular duct and above the mylohyoid. They're sort of anterior to the submandibular glands um, in the floor of the mouth and just sort of lateral to them. There's one on either side, obviously, and the gland drains into the floor of the mouth through quite a number of ducts that go directly into the mouth. A ranula can be excised through the floor of the mouth if it's just a simple ranula or can be excised through the neck incision if there's a plunging ranula that's extending down into the neck. I think it's just something to be aware of. I don't necessarily know we need to know everything about it, but I hadn't come across it before, so you thought maybe you might not have either. So to finish off this episode, I was going to talk about neck abscesses. And in our curriculum, they talk about cervical infections describing the fascial compartments of the neck, diagnosing and investigating an abscess, and they want us to have an operative does for incision and drainage of cervical abscess and emergency tracheostomy um, under this topic. So to start with, let's talk about the different compartments of the neck. So there are a number of layers of fascia in the neck, there's the superficial cervical fascia or the superficial investing layer of fascia. And this is a thin, delicate fascia that sits just deep to the skin and includes the platysma. So it's that sort of layer and also the muscles of facial expression on the face. Deep to the superficial cervical fascia is the external and anterior jugular veins, fat, and lymphatics. And abscesses located here just require simple incision and drainage. Then there is three layers of deep cervical fascia. The first of these three layers is the superficial layer, also called the investing 
layer, which is very confusing because the first layer was the superficial cervical fascia or superficial investing layer. But this is the superficial investing layer of the deep cervical fascia, just to make it really confusing. And the superficial deep cervical fascia envelops the trapezius and the sternocleidomastoid muscles and also contributes to the fascia around the submandibular and parotid glands. And so this defines the parotid space, the submandibular space, and this fascia also envelops the muscles of mastication on the face. So it also defines the mastication spaces. The middle layer of deep cervical fascia extends from the skull base along the carotid sheath all the way down to the pericardium. And there's two layers to this. So there's a muscular layer that envelops the infrahyoid strap muscles, carotid artery and internal jugular vein. And then there's a visceral layer which lies deep to the infrahyoid muscles and splits to enclose the thyroid, trachea, pharynx, and esophagus. And then there's a deep layer of deep cervical fascia. And this deep layer encircles the prevertebral muscles and contributes to the carotid sheath as well. So it's basically the prevertebral fascia. So in terms of abscess spaces and how to drain them, things that might be relevant to us. So the parotid space, as I've mentioned, is bounded by the superficial investing layer of deep cervical fascia. And the superficial capsule is very strong, um, but the deep layer of this fascia is quite thin. So it does allow infections in the parotid to spread easily into the parapharyngeal space. And causes of sepsis in this area include parotiditis or um, bacterial infections in the parotid, psilatinitis or adjacent sepsis such of, as of the overlying skin. And patients will present with tenderness, swelling and trismus and often no fluctuance because of the tight capsule. Diagnosis is with ultrasound or CT. And management, as I've mentioned earlier in the episode, is typically with aspiration and antibiotics. Incision and drainage is difficult and obviously injury to the facial nerve is a principal concern. And so if you're going to do this, you should elevate a skin flap to expose the capsule, incise the capsule along the axis of the facial nerve, and then just bluntly break down the locules and insert drains. The next space I'm going to talk about is the sublingual space, and this is contained by the mucosa of the floor of the mouth above and the mylohyoid below. This is connected with the submandibular space around that posterior edge of the mylohyoid, and so pus can track there as well as a plunging ranula, which we talked about earlier. Um, and Infections in the sublingual space can also track to the submental space and the parapharyngeal space posteriorly. And common causes of a sublingual space infection include a dental sepsis, again, sialolithiasis, or an infected ranula. And patients will present with pain, swelling, and induration in the floor of the mouth, and they may have elevation of the tongue. 
and management is transoral drainage by incising the mucosa in the anterior floor of the mouth parallel to the submandibular duct because you've got to be mindful of the sublingual uh, of the lingual nerve and then blunt dissection um, taking care not to injure the duct or the lingual nerve and you can reach the submandibular space as well through this approach going around the um, corner of the mylohyoid Given I've mentioned the submandibular space, this space is bordered medially by the mylohyoid fascia and inferiorly by the anterior belly of digastrix and is continuous posteriorly with the sublingual space, as we just mentioned. can also be caused by sialadenitis, sialolithiasis, or dental sepsis and presents with swelling and tenderness in the submandibular triangle of the neck. And management is a horizontal skin crease incision at the level of the hyoid, about two fingers breadths below the mandible to avoid damage to the marginal mandibular nerve. And you have to dissect through platysma with blunt dissection and place a drain. And then the last infection I want to talk about is Ludwig's angina. So Ludwig's angina is an infection in the sublingual and submandibular space that is rapidly progressive and can lead to surgical emergency with airway compromise. Generally, there's no abscess with Ludwig's angina, but it's a um, basically a spreading infection and inflammation that causes the airway compromise. Patients will present with pain, drooling, dysphagia, submandibular swelling and trismus. And they can also get upwards and posterior displacement of the tongue, which is what causes airway compromise. Management includes ABCs and approaching the patient with crisp principles, obviously, broad spectrum antibiotics. Investigation can include a CT scan to identify septic foci, but obviously if the patient is in extremis, that may not be possible. You need to secure the airway. And you want to do that as early as possible because you don't want to wait until the swelling is so bad that the anesthetist can't get uh, to the airway through a transoral approach. And you can end up in a can't intubate, can't ventilate scenario with Ludwig's angina. And this may require urgent cricothyroidotomy. Patients may need a awake fiber optic nasotracheal intubation in these situations. And if there is abscesses present, then you should incise and drain them, which could either be a transoral or an external route, depending on the space involved. And that completes this episode on salivary gland pathology. Thanks again for joining me. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It makes it easier for others to find, and I love reading your reviews. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>